No mai haere mai, my name is Jeremy, and this is the Maximus Institute Podcast. As one of our last truly public rituals, Anzac Day claims a sacred space in New Zealand's national attention. Over the past century, the commemorations have provided a powerful and imaginative story for New Zealanders. The story has shifted over the years, but retained central themes such as sacrifice, integrity, duty and service on behalf of others. However, Anzac Day's history has not been an untroubled one. The day has been a cause for protest over time. While the sacredness of Anzac Day has been invoked to shut down debate, its annual liturgies of communal observance have also served as a potent platform for public exploration of contemporary controversies. By tracing some of the history of this continuity and change, we can see how Anzac Day has provided a forum and a set of rituals, traditions and symbols to affirm our communities and, through a shared past, to negotiate and debate what it means to be a member of New Zealand society. This month on the podcast, I'm joined by the most recent addition to the Maxim Institute research team, Dr. Rowan Light. Rowan joined us at the beginning of this year, but this wasn't the first time that he and I had had a chance to work together. The quote that I just read comes from the article Protest and Patriotism that Rowan wrote for the 2018 volume of Flint and Steel, Maxim's annual magazine. That year, we had chosen the theme of New Zealand's public square, looking at where and how we can talk about and debate the different versions of who we are and how we should live in a pluralistic culture. If you want to read Rowan's article in full, head to flintandsteelmag.com or we'll have a link in the podcast notes for you to follow. Obviously, it's been two years since uh, Rowan wrote that article and I thought this year leading up to Anzac Day it would be a great opportunity to sit down and talk with him a little bit about what's changed in the meantime and his thoughts on uh, the world that Anzac Day sits in now. For now, let's get into that conversation and how we commemorate the stories of the past in a present that's like nothing we've experienced before. Rowan, I think we first met to have a conversation about Anzac Day in a cafe underneath the University of Canterbury Library about this time in 2018. You've obviously got a lot of passion as a historian looking at this issue. What is it that made you interested in Anzac Day as a subject? Well, I came actually to Anzac Day in quite a roundabout way. Um, so I do have kind of a family connection to Anzac Day and, and, and the sort of history of New Zealanders in the First World War. My great-grandfather served at Gallipoli and my grandfather in the Second World War. But I actually um, came to Anzac Day as a subject in my university years, when I, in particular, in a kind of funny quirk, when I went actually on a student exchange in Dublin, and I was there as a student, and a, an exchange student, and I met um, an Australian historian called Mark McKenna, who was visiting as a kind of visiting, on a kind of sabbatical of sorts, and he was running a course on Australian history. And so... Uh, it was in that course, that, as a New Zealander sitting in on this Australian history course, that Mark highlighted the kind of the, the central place that Anzac Day has in Australian culture. And what struck me then, as, as indeed today, is really some of the differences, as well as the similarities. Of course, Anzac is uh, a shared kind of practice. It's there in the name of Anzac. Um, and yet I saw quite different, some differences and also some similarities in how a kind of national tradition of, of remembrance has, has changed over time. And it was in those conversations with, with Mark um, that led me basically to come back to New Zealand and, and having decided that I would, would investigate this, this, this difference um, and the similarity that Australians and New Zealanders share, um, realising that actually the history of Anzac Day wasn't something that 
New Zealanders had actually given a lot of thought to. Yeah, and obviously I, I know a little bit about um, about your work as a historian before coming on staff at Maxim Institute, but I mean, you, you took that interest in, in Anzac Day that you found overseas and you actually ended up coming back and doing your PhD in that. So can you talk to me about a little bit about the posture that you took and, and kind of the questions that you had coming into that that made you want to actually choose that as your thesis topic? As I mentioned there, the my interest in Anzac Day kind of came out of these broader questions um, or this kind of broader encounter with, with Australian and then New Zealand history and the kind of the sense of a shared space that Anzac kind of represents. But I suppose I was kind of interested as a kind of budding historian in questions of national identity, which were kind of quite personal to myself as a, as a Pākehā New Zealander. And I was interested in a sense where, if in Australia, um, Anzac Day has kind of become in many ways a kind of central kind of national day. It, is, it has become more important in many ways than Australia Day to, to Australians. In contrast, New Zealand has this kind of mix of, of public commemorations around Waitangi Day as well as Anzac Day um, and how these kind of fit into very different kind of national stories um, of how we see ourselves and the kind of um, where we see ourselves have, have come from. Because I suppose what, what struck me about the history of Anzac Day is that all uh, and what's kind of almost quite challenging about getting into questions of memory is that things which seem to us um, as as how they've always been, that, that the kind of traditions take on this kind of power, that they are the way things are done and how they've always been. But actually, in many ways, the kind of national story of Anzac Day, the sense that Anzac Day is a day precisely which unites us as New Zealanders and as a nation, is actually quite a recent kind of development. And that's what struck me in my in my initial kind of engagement with, with this history was actually realising um, it's been within a number of generations, there's been a shift um, towards seeing Anzac Day as a day of unity and a day of kind of celebration of, of, of kind of national values. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I have to say, growing up in the 90s, the feeling I definitely had is that the reverence for Anzac Day and that story of the World War One veterans had, had had always been on kind of a consistent upwards trend in my lifetime. I mean, my parents are American, um, but I was, I was born here and grew up here. So I, I didn't have that same sense of, oh, my, my grandfather or my great-grandfather served in the war. Um, but still, at the age of 19, I, I felt the pull, you know, to, to go to a dawn service and just to, to commemorate that as kind of part of the, the sort of the Kiwi thing to do so where i mean you know if you're talking about sort of how things develop where did that ritual of the dawn service come from and and how did the sort of legendary or, or mythic sort of qualities of anzac day that we sort of enjoy or, or appreciate now where did that come about to think about something like the dawn service um, the dawn service is actually a, an australian kind of invention so it's one of australia's great kind of exports um uh, <laughs> <laughs> finally something they can take credit for <laughs> yeah so we should give them that credit um so it comes out of the um the 19 in the 1920s and it kind of jumps jumps over the tasman to new zealand and um, by the 1930s and it's adopted as part of a um an emerging kind of um emerging evolving set of practices around um this thing that we now think of as anzac day but was in in the in those in that period before or rather between between the second, first and the second world war was actually something which um which was quite sort of different and developed over time so um we had in australia there's sort of a um the dawn service emerges from what's really broadly i would describe as kind of public christianity so this kind of um it takes taking the form of a uh the anglican kind of liturgical rite of of um of benediction 
coming at dawn to, to commemorate the landing of the of the Anzacs at Anzac Cove, which was actually an Australian, so the Australians were the first to land at Anzac Cove. Um, New Zealanders actually came later in the day, but so it kind of takes on a special kind of symbolism for, for the Australian kind of military experience of, of the Gallipoli campaign. It was also took on these, this kind of religious symbolism in, in being uh, at dawn, the kind of as a sort of symbol of, of, of resurrection at Easter time. Uh, we know, of course, that um, Easter and Anzac Day often fall kind of um, in the same time period. So that kind of gave this heightened sense of kind of of the religious symbolism of, of this dawn service. Um, and that also has kind of changed over time. In the early years, when was Anzac Day as a sort of a, a day of commemoration that was a national day? When did that idea come about? Because obviously, I mean, we can think about it as this thing that's been in stone for our entire lifetimes. But obviously, someone at some point had to have the idea, hey, this is the moment that we should commemorate. I mean, were there other moments that were equally sort of worthy of commemoration uh, from New Zealand's history that have sort of gone by the wayside? The first Anzac Day is uh, celebrated or held, commemorated in 1916. So as the war is ongoing, so that first anniversary of the Gallipoli landing not long after the Gallipoli campaign had actually um, come to a, an inglorious uh, end. And it was something which yeah, evolved over a number of years. I mean, it was interesting that it was first, it's always been invoked as Anzac Day. Um, there were suggestions, particularly from British um, journalists, who said that actually this shouldn't be called Anzac Day, it should be called Gallipoli Day. Um, and that actually speaks to a, a longer tradition of military commemorations where we have things days which celebrate kind of campaigns or battles. So, for example, in the late, that period around the end of the war, we still have traditions of things like Trafalgar Day, um, Waterloo Day. These were military commemorations that the, the Navy and the Army um, throughout the British and its various kind of manifest institutional expressions in the British Empire would, would, would commemorate. Um, and those actually have a they they continue into the into the interwar period. Um, we might point to to days of commemoration such as Empire Day, which kind of um, which has since kind of um, ossified into Queen's Birthday weekend. But was a big uh, there was an attempt in the between the first and the second war to kind of find days of commemoration which placed these war experiences, in, in particularly the First World War, and try to make sense of them through. A different a whole collection of kind of cultural paraphernalia and one of them was empire and one of them we've touched on was kind of public christianity in new zealand i think what we also uniquely had as a, um, in contrast to places like australia were actually um, early quite nascent but still um, established forms of military commemoration coming to us through um, by virtue of the new zealand wars so Early on in Anzac commemoration, we do see the sense of, of Anzac, the Anzacs at Gallipoli in the First World War, and in particular Pākehā and Māori kind of col collaboration in the war as being an expression of, of a kind of, um, of a colonial kind of spirit which had emerged from those early wars of, of settlement. And it seems to us sitting in 2020, we sit in a kind of weird, because for us the, the New Zealand wars are, as, uh, are talked about as a history which has been forgotten, um, and it's and it certainly is. Um, but actually, we had quite a quite a, an established kind of military commemoration of the New Zealand wars 
up until really after the Second World War. So we have things like the, the Battle of Oroko, which in some ways to me filled a similar kind of role as Gallipoli does to us today. It's a day, it was a battle which in which Māori were kind of celebrated as being glorious, valiant, defeated. They, they fight a battle to the, the most famously invoked in the kind of Wirir's last stand, the kind of defiance to the end against the British soldiers, um, even against all, all odds, um, and eventually having to surrender and, and re- retreat, being a kind of almost a proto-Anzac myth. And it was told in many different ways in film and stories by historians as a encapsulating a spirit of New Zealanders, um, sharing in this kind of war experience something which Māori and Pākehā would, would share, a kind of self-respect of each other. It's kind of interesting when we think about that because of we might some of those themes might sort of resonate with how we think of, um, we often hear when we talk about Gallipoli and the Anzacs, of the kind of that sense of valiant defeat. It is a defeat, the Gallipoli campaign, it's a, it's a bit of a disaster, we know that. There's also the sense of the, the respect between enemies, um, between the Turkish and the New Zealand and Australian forces, and that's sort of an appealing part of the, of the story of Gallipoli that we often hear today. So, and also, of course, the idea that that war experience, whether it's Gallipoli or Oroko, kind of tells us something about our national character. Both of those, yeah, they're sort of a comparable, um, there's sort of certain resonances there. But just to answer your broader question, which was to say that these things are what are shaping Anzac Day in that early period of formation. And I suppose what's valuable to think about is that we, while we think of Anzac Day in very strong national terms, Anzac Day was part and parcel of a broader kind of cultural fabric, which which saw New Zealand as part of a story of, of empire, of um, colonial settlements, and um, of a kind of pioneering society, um, as well as being a kind of budding national community. You, you talk about the role of Anzac Day shaping our national identity and kind of this telling a story about who we are, but obviously there's lots of stories about who we are, and so I guess part of the choosing of which story you tell, there is a there is a political or a, or a culture-making angle to that. Um, in, in the article, you start out by talking about the... Um, the, the statue of the untidy soldier that, that was in your neighbourhood when you were growing up in Devonport. Um, what, what does that say about how New Zealanders, at, at a certain point at least, wanted to be seen um, and wanted to be thought of? You sort of touched on it with the pioneering, but what, what was it about the character of, of, of those sorts of commemorative acts like building statues or you know certain types of parades and, and services? What were we trying to say about ourselves back then? Well, I suppose there's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really fascinating thing, like what, looking at how a society looks to make sense of and then remember something as extraordinary and as, as terrible as the First World War. And we, that's when we see, when we, if we look to our lo- in our local suburb or, or town and we look at the statues and the monuments that were established between the First and Second World War, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing communities come to terms with, with, with mass death, um, with the wounds that and, and of these communities, I suppose we could say a few things. One is that those, how did those communities make sense of, of that? We talked, we've talked about public Christianity. We've talked about empire. They tried to make sense of these experiences in quite local ways. So people didn't necessarily they didn't see themselves as we might talk about Anzac Day in kind of national terms. They saw themselves in quite local ways. So you cite there the the untidy soldier that was. 
a monument raised to the men of of Devonport. It was uh, it was a monument dedicated to those men who came from the borough of Devonport back when it was a was a borough and um, and those uh, men who served. And it was that sense of service of kind of a civic service that they had that they had committed themselves to. These were um, citizen soldiers. They were. Um, a kind of a an, that idea, kind of a I suppose a sense of that this is the the ultimate expression of of what it means to be a, a citizen. That was something that was actually shared um, by by many um, Maori um, leaders who saw the First World War and particularly the Second World War as an opportunity to participate in citizenship, and that through sacrifice um, and that sense of duty and sacrifice came with it rights and responsibilities of citizenship. So. Even in the in the unveiling of the untidy soldier, we we see there, as I mentioned in the article, uh, Maui Pomari, his um, who was the um, native minister at the time, um, who essentially talked about this sense of that this that the that Maori com- commitment in the First World War had had been this expression of a shared citizenship. Uh, there's also an interesting aspect of this, which is, and this comes back later when we think about some of the protests and the conflicts, is that. In this kind of emerging landscape of commemoration, as you as you rightly point out, there's a process of kind of remembering but forgetting as well, because we cannot societies and communities can't uh, any even in our own selves we can never remember the past in a tot in its total. We just can't fit it all in into the same kind of picture. We have to pick and choose to make sense of of the past. So communities necessarily omitted aspects of of that war experience in particular in the in something like the untidy soldier what do we see we see a soldier we see the a statue of of a kind of military experience of the first world war but of course the first world war wasn't just something which affected um, soldiers on battlefields it was something which actually encompassed all communities so it was there was a, a negotiation in a way and a, a kind of politics of, of memory in which those who had been left behind mothers um, wives, for example, who um, had to kind of look to to find a kind of a, a place within this new kind of commemorative landscape. That reminds me of a statue that's actually on Simon Street in Auckland. Of uh, there's a, a a plinth that you'd normally see a uh, a soldier on top of, but instead of this being a soldier on top of the plinth, there's actually the statue, a bronze statue of a woman standing next to the plinth, with her arm raised as if to sort of gesture to the to the absence um, of of the the sort of man that would would normally be on top of it. And I remember the first time I saw it, just being so struck by how different that was, the different story of 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 war and loss and sacrifice that it that it told. Ah, it's very interesting that you mentioned that statue. That is actually, um, and that's actually a New Zealand Wars commemoration. But I think when you look at it, I think it's very natural to see it within that First World War iconography. But it would have actually been a memorial which was raised within the ten years or so of the First World War. So it's actually commemorating earlier conflict, but within that kind of period. So it, yeah, we're seeing. But it is true. It is very true that. We tended to see, uh, so what that's one way that 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 um, those who had been left behind, so to speak, on the home front, were able to kind of carve out a role within this commemorative landscape was as 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 mourning, as the kind of mourners of of loss, um, and that's a very powerful kind of archetype of of kind of interwar commemoration, and even today I think the this image of of the mourning um, woman, um, and that's something which we see come through in the protest era, 
you see it, I think, even today, um, without getting too far ahead of ourselves, um, in terms of J- Jacinda Ardern's kind of posture as the kind of mourning mother figure of um, following March 15. That, to me, was very much reminiscent of that kind of role that, that um, of the kind of mourner. I definitely want to come back to how those sort of archetypes have followed through to the last two years. But before we get there, I just want to go back to the title of your article, which is Protest and Patriotism. And it kind of gives away your thesis that Anzac Day isn't just about the way we commemorate war heroes. It's also been a site of protest. And when we were talking about Flint and Steel and the um, magazine looking at the public square, obviously a lot of the public square is where we have some quite sort of fractious and tense debates um, about what we value and what we think is good in society and obviously Anzac Day over the decades has been the site of a lot of protests and why do you think that is what what is it about Anzac Day that offers people or I guess challenges certain people to to go against the tide of what most New Zealanders are doing in commemorating that day that's very interesting I mean there's a there's a few layers there one I think is this is is worth pointing out which is as you've said like the public square as a as a as I think almost by definition the place where we work through differences that could be a way of thinking about what the public is it's where we agree with with what makes our what kind of keeps us together and in doing so we define what we don't agree with so kind of that mix of of orthodox and heterodox we kind of define well what are we for by definition we we are defining what we're not for now commemoration and memory and history are very powerful tools um, for for shaping public consensus because they are shared languages and shared practices and shared rituals, shared stories, which we can use to make sense of change and debate. They're things that, that people can grasp onto. They, they're often associated with places, so places where people meet and, and imagine themselves in a kind of community and having a kind of relationship, like we talked about with the untidy soldier, politicians and, and community leaders kind of meeting together around this statue articulating these relationships of, of political citizenship. So that traditions, particularly commemoration, and particularly war commemoration, because of the sense of the giving of life, kind of has is a natural, I think, quite organic sort of sources of kind of public public relationships. Now, why Anzac Day? Now, that kind of goes to the, today. Why, why is Anzac Day such a, why does it seem such a rich sort of source of, of that um, making of, of kind of public consensus well I think part of that is explains the big shifts that we've seen in New Zealand society since the Second World War so if we had public Christianity if we had this kind of story of, of almost romantic kind of unity between Māori and Pākehā of empire you know framed in this big grand story of empire in that interwar period that we've talked about that those kind of pillars which are kind of an image that's that's used in the article kind of fall away um, one by one in many ways um, or in a very interconnected kind of way in the kind of post-war period and within that that comes a kind of both a, a search for new stories to make sense of change and, and big changes over time particularly the the end of the British Empire um, which is something which we don't tend to really appreciate I think as New Zealanders how fundamental a kind of cultural paradigm shift that represented in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Part of the interesting question here is, well, yeah, why does Anzac Day kind of seem to be the last, seem to be the kind of lifeboat that that we are drawn to? I raise, yeah, some examples of, of, of that sense of the of way that Anzac Day, since um, 
over the 1960s and 70s in what was a really period of immense kind of change for, for New Zealand society and around the world. Um, it's a period which comes with varying changes, um, social, economic, cultural, um, in which uh, we saw um, there emerge kind of uh, generational kind of critiques of different aspects of our society. So we saw, for example, in the context of the Vietnam War, which was a war which um, a great many New Zealanders um, supported, but there was a kind of a, a significant minority who, who disagreed with, with the Holyoke National Government's involvement in, in the Vietnam War. We saw kind of for the first time, if, if the First World War and the Second World Wars had seen quite a kind of, a kind of public consensus that these were things that the nation we needed to get behind as a nation. In the context of Vietnam, we saw kind of emerging disagreements about whether New Zealand should be involved in, in, um, in the, the, that conflict. So we saw um, in the context of the Vietnam War, you know, student groups who um, opposed the war and opposed New Zealand's involvement in the war, um, co-opting Anzac Day rituals um, uh, and um, such as the laying of wreaths. And, and, and there was um, uh, student groups in Auckland and, and uh, at Wellington and Christchurch would lay wreaths which aimed to commemorate civilians who had been killed in the, in the conflict in Vietnam. So, you know, we think of the, uh, the quintessential kind of American atrocity of the Mai Lai massacre by American soldiers. These were kind of events which were capturing the, the imaginations and the kind of sense of, of indignation of, of young New Zealanders in the 1960s and into the 1970s. Um, and they, these young New Zealanders, sought to uh, include the, the victims of kind of the civilian casualties of war within this kind of ambit of commemoration that was Anzac Day. And so we see there what was both a co-opting, they're engaging in practices familiar to their audiences, to their mothers and fathers and community leaders, um, the laying of wreaths, but in a way which actually was extending or, or changing the kind of focus of commemoration. So we see there an example of, of, of shared practices but being used in a kind of different kind of sense. Going back to the experience of Anzac Day in our lifetime and how we've sort of seen it increase in public value almost in terms of the, the participation in dawn services and I guess the rise in young people who, who weren't necessarily, um, you know, they're, they're a couple of generations removed from the actual events of Anzac Day. Actually going along and seeing this day and this remembrance as having value. In, in the article, you talk about uh, the fact that the Clark government actually seized on this and, and, and really purposefully uh, invested in the storytelling of Anzac Day. Can you describe kind of what happened there and what you sort of saw as the impetus behind that? What you're describing there is, is really the shift that starts um, in the 1990s. So if we've just in 2015 commemorated the centenary of, of Anzac, in 1990 marked the, the 75th anniversary of Anzac Day, which is not the most auspicious anniversary, but it was uh, a significant one enough that the Australian and um, to a lesser, much lesser extent the New Zealand governments engaged in, in what was really the first big state commemoration at Gallipoli. So we have in 1990, Bob Hawke, the, the Australian Prime Minister, is the first, becomes the first Prime Minister to be at Gallipoli um, at the dawn service in time of Anzac, at Anzac Day. Um, 
So the 1990s, um, a period of, of kind of big change. There's different ways we could talk about this. I mean, one is that you have these different ideas of what how memory operates um, over time. Historians sometimes talk about social memory as or social remembrance as practices which are shared by those who experience, say, a historical event, say those soldiers of the First World War, which we've talked about, and this kind of role that they formulated for themselves as kind of citizen soldiers, and that was expressed through kind of communities and networks like the Return Service Organisations, which is the RSA, most prominently in New Zealand, and the, the families and then the churches and all the different communities that kind of interacted through a kind of social networks of memory. But as you say, well, what happens to social memory and those communities of memory when those who are kind of the, the vessels of that memory, those who experienced those events, start to die? And that's kind of a crucial period when historians suggest that social memory starts to either, it either disappears because you no longer have the, the, the kind of glue that keeps those, that purpose of that remembrance together, or it becomes something else, it becomes something more cultural. So it starts to become detached from experience and starts to take, be expressed in cultural practices and traditions over time, which are disconnected, increasingly kind of disconnected from social experiences um, and takes on a kind of much more kind of cosmic, almost cosmic kind of significance for, for communities. The word myth comes to mind because obviously when, when a story is disconnected from the actual person who lives it and who could tell it, other people have got to pick it up and start to pick out which aspects of what they've heard they're then going to pass on. And so then it becomes a sort of a myth-making. You know, talking from the 90s, you also have um, sort of worldwide cultural touchstones that start to emerge like Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan, which are not about the same events, but you've got a, a similar sense of wanting to put in place artifacts of memory that sort of contain the experience that we're wanting to remember and so I mean in, in the article you sort of note that Saving Private Ryan comes into a moment where New Zealanders are sort of getting more in, interested and then obviously the Clark government in the early 2000s have that ceremony for the tomb for the unknown soldier. Can you describe a little bit around around what led to that happening and when what it meant? What you've identified which is a big global shift and what's been described as really a boom in memory towards the end of the 20th century and that's very much related to things, those events which you've touched on, um, the world wars, but also things like the Holocaust, these kind of mass experiences, these very traumatic moments in the 20th century, which are both, um, you know, both demand us, demand of us to, to, to recognise and to grapple with, but are also incredibly difficult parts of the past to deal with. So we have what's this big global memory boom which takes on very different, distinct kind of local flavours, as you've identified, in New Zealand. So you mentioned there the, the tombing, the, the, the repatriation and the entombment of the unknown warrior in 2004 by the Helen Clark Labour government. Um, that's a really interesting event and to me encapsulates really the big shift that we've seen in Anzac Day in its 100 year or so history. We see that repatriation is is in part uh, a co-option, once again, of what the Australians have already done. So just like the Dawn Service is that import into our Anzac Day repertoire, uh, the repatriation of the Unknown Warrior is also a kind of a, a little bit of a, a, a reaction to what the Australians have already done in 1993. So in 1993, the Unknown Australian Soldier is repatriated by the 
Paul Keating Labour government. And it's interesting that these are both Labour governments um, seeking to kind of, uh, in many ways, reconcile the nation to, to, to reckon to, to in this act of repatriation to reconcile later rest the sense of the of the national past and here literally embodied in, in this the bones of this unknown warrior uh, in 2004 there's the sense of, of kind of that powerful I think image and powerful practice of what it means to bury a human body there in that act in 2004 you know burying the bones of a person, um, in fact, digging up the bones of a person, which is also what they, of course, they did in that those repatriation acts, is one of the most intimate things you can claims you can make on a person. If we think about our loved ones, you know, to bury them is, is a profound statement of care and also responsibility and kind of a sense of of custodianship, almost stewardship of that of those human remains. Um, so some of that I think is captured in the power and the emotional appeal of of repatriation. There's the sense of this is a this is the, the nation reaching back into its past to find a kind of uh, almost a, a whakapapa, um, a, a genealogy in which this, this soldier embodies this kind of the generations of, of war dead who are then brought back under the, the, the authority of the government and, and the nation and then buried at Pukiahu National War Memorial in Wellington. And the sense of that powerful claim of, of, of on place that act represents, I think, is a really is not one to underestimate. You've talked about Australia, the unknown soldier, but obviously there's um, a different word that you've been using for ours, and that it's an unknown warrior. What's the intent do you see behind that? In the mid two thousands, we're seeing this attempt through uh, lots of different parts of New Zealand society, an attempt to reconcile um, our past of settlements and colonisation and, and a recovery and a newfound respect for the Treaty of Waitangi. So there's this kind of interesting little intersection here of, of a new bicultural public at the turn of the millennium. So this, again, the sense of, of bringing, reconciling the nation, reconciling its past through this unknown warrior. Um, and we actually see that if you have a chance to actually visit the unknown warrior tomb, and it's very much a bicultural, sculptural, it's very much respectful, but it's also a very kind of material, kind of tangible place where you, you go and you kind of, um, you can touch this, this tomb and you will see the, the karanga, uh, the, the call, which is inscribed on the, on the tomb, referencing this kind of call, this return of this unknown warrior back into service, as, as Helen Clark talked about, we're calling this, this unknown warrior back to serve the nation again as the symbol of national unity, one which evoked a kind of biculturalism. Obviously, in the two years since we published your article, Anzac Day commemorations have actually been significantly disrupted, first by last year's March 15th moth shooting, and now by COVID-19 this year. Looking back at what you wrote, I mean, how do you respond to the events of the ensuing years? Um, and, and how do you think that Anzac Day commemorations um, might actually be impacted by what we as a nation are currently going through? And, and how can we draw... Is there a way that we can, you know, that Anzac storytelling capabilities um, and the way that we sort of publicly talk about our national identity on that day uh, will be influenced by these massive events and sort of in our history? Well, it's been a massive, massive two years, hasn't it? It's it's really, there's so many things we could touch on. Um, it's also just to kind of return to the reason why I, I looked at Anzac Day as a topic for a PhD is, is partly because it's precisely it's something which is evolving and changing over time. 
um, which makes it a very exciting thing to consider. What we could think about, um, of course, we've seen um, on the one hand, what we've seen are two very uh, significant kind of state commemorations. We've seen the, comp- the end, of course, of the, the Anzac centenary period, or the period of commemorating the First World War, um, finishing in 2018. Uh, and what was, I mean, that was, the New- was New Zealand's biggest public commemoration in our history, even bigger than the, the centenary of the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi in 1940. It's, it's a really big kind of landmark of state investment in kind of cultural narratives of our nation. That is significant, it's a, and even so, in many ways we're still kind of dealing with the aftermath of that, we're still coming to terms with how that has shaped our understanding of Anzac Day. We could think of something like the Tapapa Gallipoli exhibition, which came out of that period. You know, what does that tell us about the sort of shape that this that centenary has given to how we think about Anzac Day and the First World War? Well, I would say it's drawn quite a clear line between national identity to to the place of Gallipoli and the heroic kind of figures of those um, who engaged in the in, in the conflict, the Anzacs. We've also seen the Tuia. Um, 250 state commemoration, commemorating the, uh, a different kind of story of, almost a different kind of foundational story of, of the New Zealand nation, um, which ties to um, that of Captain, the discovery, uh, so to speak, of, of by Captain Cook of, um, of New Zealand on behalf of, of, of the British Empire. A very powerful and, and very complicated story, which has been told and commemorated over the last century, um, and which um, I think saw kind of quite a different kind of approach in many ways to to commemorating uh, one which tried to be much more inclusive and include hapu and iwi perspectives. What those big state commemorations show us, even as we still kind of come to terms with how what they actually meant for us as New Zealanders and kind of some of the the, the conflicts which came out of those commemorations, um, what they point to is the way that commemorations provide us with kind of commonality, uh, shared shared stories, shared points of reference that can then be, as we've talked about, then used as a kind of way to engage in, in critiques of our, our society. So we saw in the last couple of years debate around um, the actions of the New Zealand Defence Forces uh, in Afghanistan around, highlighted by the Operation Burnham uh, Inquiry, which is still ongoing. And we saw how that protests on Anzac Day um, and, say, highlighting, once again, kind of civilians' casualties of war and, and the extent to which we can include those within the ambit of, of a military commemoration or whether Anzac Day can encompass more um, than just um, soldiers. Um, and, of course, perhaps most, most importantly, of course, we've had March 15 and um, this kind of terrible event uh, which we're still coming to terms with which has been, uh, again, really interesting, has provoked really interesting debates about who is included in Anzac Day in this, commem- in this commemoration and how, how do we commemorate um, the past. Just reflecting on the events that you're just describing there, it seems to me that there is something about collective suffering uh, that we are much better at marking and commemorating in New Zealand than we are at celebrating publicly. Is there something about a, a commemoration of something that is sombre that you think fits more squarely with the New Zealand identity than a celebration? 
Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I, I think there is something to be said about that. I mean, if going back to the comparison between Australia and New Zealand, what's striking in Australia, as I mentioned, is that Anzac Day is, is a day to celebrate Australia in a way which I think New Zealanders would find quite jarring. We like to think of Anzac Day, as you say, as a sombre, as a day of, of sorrow. And I think that language of sorrow rather than of pride is probably the, is the vocabulary that we would draw on uh, in our own commemoration in contrast to Australia. So there is definitely a tradition, I think, a kind of genealogy, which, which is one of, of, of mourning and, and sorrow rather than of, of kind of celebration. It is interesting that we, in say, if we look at the First World War commemoration um, that of the World War 100 centenary kind of program, so much was emphasised, um, so much of the emphasis rather was placed on 2014 and 2015, the kind of front ends of the conflict. Um, but we be- we barely invested in the commemoration of the end of the war. What should have been the kind of main celebration, uh, the end of the war uh, in, in 2018, but it kind of ended with a bit of a whimper, um, in part because all the, the cash and all the emphasis had been, had been spent uh, and all the enthusiasm had been spent much earlier. But I think you've touched on what is partly the, you've, we've talked about myth and the, and the ways in which stories are supposed to convey certain things to us. And I think the kind of pathos of, of, of war and of the kind of sacrifice on behalf, behalf of others is, is, a very, is a very powerful sort of sentiment. Um, we often hear, I mean, that's probably one of the ways that the Anzacs are most invoked, I think, in our culture. We hear invariably those who sacrifice their lives in some way um, as a kind of, Anza, as the Anzac spirit. So that's something we hear. Um, I think of John Key after the, the 2011 earthquake in Christchurch invoked the Anzac sort of spirit uh, as in, in invoking the kind of the, the, the ways in which people in Christchurch had kind of suffered and, 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 and also the emergency services who had, had kind of responded to the, to, the, to the disaster. Well, there's a unity in mourning, isn't there? There's a direct humanity in marking and, and memorialising loss. Um, and I just, I just think about sort of the difference between the 200th celebrations of the landing of the Endeavour or the, the sort of the voyage of the Endeavour to New Zealand, which was much more sort of a, a time of confidence and pride in a sort of assumed national story. As, we, as we've sort of grappled with that and realised that our national story is not unmixed, can't be viewed with a sort of unmixed delight, that the 250th um, Tuia 250 commemorations were not able to be a similar sort of celebration um, because we recognize that there's something to be grappled with uh, before we can actually move forward with confidence and telling a national story that we can celebrate. Exactly and I think what's probably changed in those last 50 years is really the the voice of Māori and the, that have been quite ultimately quite disruptive of those kind of celebratory narratives and the ways that those have forced us, forced all New Zealanders to contend with, yeah, as you say, the the less comfortable aspects of our past, to own them and to to deal with them in a public way, a process which I think is still ongoing. And we could point to the Waitangi Tribunal settlements and and the ongoing kind of demands to include the New Zealand wars within a kind of commemorative day. We now have Ram Mahara, the day of of remembrance, the day of commemoration of the New Zealand wars, of course, we've got the, this, this look to, to redesign New Zealand history in, in our schools as part of that. 
But we do. I think you've. T- yeah, I think you're you're really right there. That there is seems to be less uh, capacity for us to have a kind of monolithic story, which is just kind of 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 celebration. I think you could draw a bit of a contrast to Australia again, where I I think they're still um, going through a process of recognizing at a kind of constitutional level those. Um, the kind of the wrongs of, of, of the past through those experiences of, of colonisation and, and war in Australian history itself, um, not, not overseas, not um, in, in Turkey, um, but on its own kind of uh, in its own places, in its own um, among its own people. So definitely, I think there's, there's, that's been part of the appeal of Anzac Day in, in Gallipoli is that it does kind of in some ways export our history and export our national identity in a way which does kind of little bit jumps, potentially sidesteps some of the trickiness of, of our national past um, by making the stage of our national kind of story, not, you know, Taranaki or, or Waikato, the sites of, of, these, of, of the bigger conflicts of the New Zealand wars, but of, of the Gallipoli Peninsula. Um, fighting heroically in this kind of conflict. It's going to be interesting to see in the next couple of years how the um, this this sort of two year gap of um, two thousand nineteen and two thousand twenty um, of missing out on sort of our national kind of you know these sort of practices that we have around the dawn services um, how that's going to influence the future commemorations and memory of Anzac Day. But for you this year, you're not going to be able to go to a dawn service. Um, is there anything, any way in particular, you're going to be um, commemorating or marking Anzac Day? Yes, well, I mean, it's true what you say, we've, and you've highlighted an important thing which has uh, taken place in the last couple of years, which has been this disruption of Anzac Day following so March 15. Um, there was the kind of debate whether Anzac Day ceremonies should be held, and in fact only very limited numbers went ahead because of security concerns. And then again, we, once again, we've, we've seen a disruption of our commemoration, commemorative kind of rhythm with under the, after in the lockdown. I think there's a few things that we will... I mean, one is that communities are very creative about how they commemorate. I, I think we will st- see quite creative responses in the, in, the, in the lockdown. I mean, I think one story that has been, again, which actually started in Australia but has kind of jumped the Tasman was the idea of people standing at the end of their drive um, or at the, you know some part of their property in the place of the dawn service and coming out at five o'clock or or quarter to five uh, on Anzac Day morning to mark the, the this commemoration. I think yeah, there's there's been different other ways that I've seen just online people kind of coming up with different ideas of how they intend to commemorate. I always try to reflect on my um, on my own family history on Anzac Day and those parts of my family who have particularly my great-grandfather and, and my grandfather who, who served um, respectively in the First and Second World Wars and I, I remember them on Anzac Day uh, and that's what I will do um, this year. And possibly some biscuits if you can find some flour. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you very much, Rowan. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Enjoy the rest of your lockdown. We will talk to you again. Thanks for listening to the Maxim Institute podcast. You can search and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.
As I said at the top of the podcast, if you would like to read Rowan's article, Protest and Patriotism, just head along to flintandsteelmag.com and you can find a full back catalogue of our previous Flint and Steel articles. So if you're a bit starved for content over this lockdown period, there's some great reading to be found there. If you'd like to keep up with what the team has been writing and reading and doing over the last month, just sign up for our monthly forum email. You can go to maxim.org.nz and we've got a sign up form there. From all of the team at Maxim Institute, Matewa, goodbye for now.